welcome to Tech Law Talks. I am Anthony Diana, a member of Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. In each episode of this podcast, we will discuss cutting edge issues on technology, data, and the law. We will provide practical observations on a wide variety of technology and data topics to give you quick and actionable tips to address the issues you are dealing with every day. Hello, and welcome to Tech Law Talks. This is Anthony Diana from Reed Smith. I'll be moderating today our series on electronic communications for financial institutions that Reed Smith is doing with Smarsh. Today, we're going to be focusing on enforcement actions and what to do when you get that subpoena. Today, I'm joined by two Reed Smith partners, John Lukansky and Kieran Sumasavara. And from Smarsh, I have Tiffany Magri. Welcome, everybody. And so let's just dive right in. So, Kieran, why don't you give us a little breakdown on what's been happening and why we're doing this? Sure. As you may uh, recall from some of our prior episodes, we've discussed that last year, beginning last year, we started to see some very significant fines and sanctions coming out of the SEC and the CFTC for financial services firms, record-keeping violations, primarily related to electronic communications. And and those those started last year with uh, JP Morgan, I think $150 million fine. And then uh, more recently in September, we saw several firms agree to pay a an aggregate of, I think it was about a 1.8, 1.9 billion with a B dollars in fines for similar violations. This topic, as 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 many of you probably know, has been a hot topic for the SEC and for other regulators for quite some time. SEC Chair Gensler, as well as the head of enforcement, Gerbeer Grewal, have uh, made many pronouncements in their speeches, public appearances, as to the commission's view as to why the preservation and supervision of uh, electronic communications is so critical to the mission statement of financial services firms, but also the mission statements of the regulators and their ability to regulate the firms in their in the industry. So, and most recently, Chair Gensler made an announcement that the SEC is looking for new cases. They are uh, they have announced a sweep. It will be relatively broad, we believe. We believe a lot of firms will receive sweep letters regarding their record-keeping policies and procedures. And and it's important to keep in mind here that the underlying conduct that led to these cases and that will lead to future cases really focuses on kind of, you know, it, it, it is based on individual brokers, investment advisors, whomever, professionals within your organizations using unregulated and unsupervised communications channels to communicate firm business. But the SEC and other regulators, while that underlying conduct is problematic, the focus of the SEC, the CFTC and other regulators has been the firm's shortfall in in establishing supervisory and compliance controls to ensure that that doesn't happen, that people do not use unregulated and unsupervised channels to communicate from business. One one last point I'll end with, the SEC has noted on more than one occasion that the use of unsupervised channels has hampered its own investigations of other firms. So the SEC sends a subpoena to a firm just as a third party asks for all emails in a particular category and the, the firm can't produce all of them because they can't represent that they've recorded all of them. 
And so that has had an impact, an adverse impact on the regulator's ability to to accomplish their mission and their goal. So that 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 is probably the chief reason why the SEC is so sensitive about this issue now and uh, is going to continue to explore the issue and look for new cases. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm personally aware that there's been a number of private equity firms, investment advisors and the like who have received those subpoenas. So it's real. It's not, this is not something that's a veiled threat. It's, it's out there. So if you're one of these firms that, that gets a notice or a subpoena from a regulator, what is the first thing you do? Uh, why don't we start with John? Sure. You know, this issue, I mean, just taking a step back, this is a pretty clear cut issue. It, there's no there's no gray area. It's either you did it or you didn't do it. And if you did do it, it's going to be evident in what you find. And if you did do it and in the past, like Kieran mentioned, you had been providing, you know, responsive materials to the regulators and prior, you know, inquiries, you've impacted those things. Um, you, you've not produced your whole set of responsive materials. So I, I think, you know, again, it's it's a clear cut issue. So what firms should do if I were a firm who got this is I would a number one, if I was a, you know, a CCO or an in-house counsel, I would do what is common sense. I would read the AWCs that FINRA has already put out or the SEC has already put out the orders just to get my hands around what the issues are. And what, and what the problems in those cases were. So I'd educate myself. That's the first step I would take. The second thing I would do is I would have a, a candid attitude about what I have to, I'd be honest with myself. You know, if I have healthy scoping and I'm looking into these issues, I am going to be genuine, honest about what I find. And that means if I find ugly and I find wart, well, then that's, that's my plate. That's, you know, I've got to come to terms with what there is, because again, this is a clear cut issue. The regulators have already been down this road with numerous firms. They understand it and you need to be honest with yourself. So I would say healthy scoping with an honest attitude that that would be the second thing I do. And then the third thing I would do is to the extent you find problems, either the problems that are similar to what, you know, the regulators have had in the past, or if you have unique problems that are new. I would engage in robust remediation. I would, you know, I would deal with the issues. If it's going to cost money, then it's going to cost money. And then the last thing I would do is I would have also robust disclosures to the regulators. I mean, if you have an issue, again, it's going to be clear cut violation. It's not, you, you shouldn't be in the mode of trying to convince the regulators that there isn't a problem. You should be in the mode of trying to mitigate the problem you have. And so those are the things I would do Sometimes firms and I've had clients, they try to get cute. This is not, this is not that time. It's, it's come to terms with what's been done, fix it and disclose it. And, and so Tiffany, in terms of, you know, obviously they're really good points by John, but like, what do you do in terms of conducting an investigation on something like this, where they're, you know, they're claiming that you're not capturing all your e-coms, particularly from personal devices and like, like, where do you start? Yeah, I think one of the, Biggest things I'd say is uh, <laughs> when you when you get this letter, there's few things that compliance officers dread more, right? Than getting than getting a letter from from an advisor. But I think you know he made great points that looking at the scope of that, what are they looking for? Knowing where to find that relevant information, how do you export it? Where are my records kept? 
you know, is really being able to like sort of darn your, your armor against these, these investigations. And I think a good point here is to remember is, you know, ask questions for clarification. If you don't understand something that's in that letter, go back to them, make sure you know exactly what they're asking for and how that's going to relate to your business. And then additionally, I would just probably add that there may be information that you need to build out. Maybe you're, they're asking for something like risk assessments or annual trainings and things like that. You may need to be able to provide some of these additional records. If you have found that you have gaps in your compliance program or your training or, or record keeping obligations, they've been pretty clear and upfront about the fact that people who come to them and are self-reporting and are able to remediate some of these things right away are having favorable outcomes with the regulators. So I think it's if you can take a proactive approach to this, even maybe before they come in and speak and really dig into those compliance policies and procedures and training and record keeping obligations and see if you have any holes now before they even show up and mitigate those ahead of time, you're going to be in a much better situation than if you sit back and wait for them to come digging. That's such a good point, Tiffany. I, you know, we're talking, this this episode is about what do you do when you get a subpoena or an inquiry and, and an investigation kicks off. Anybody listening to this podcast uh, who's in this industry is aware of these issues, is aware of these ongoing investigations and proceedings. It, it would serve your firm well to get a, get your arms around this issue as much as possible and not wait for that subpoena to come in, right? Understand what your people are doing, what channels they're using, try to get a sampling from folks that work for your firm as to whether they are sticking to supervised channels of communication or if they're if they're communicating firm business outside of those channels. Yeah. So so I guess in terms of focus, right? Because you know, a lot of people are getting these, they're panicking. And what you seem to be saying is, and you got, obviously I'll open it up for discussion, like if you did an investigation and you know people are doing, you know, we'll call them the bad actors, right? There could certainly be bad actors in your organization that are using WhatsApp and WeChat for doing bad things. That seems to be not what necessarily these investigations are about. It's really, are they doing it at all? And I think it goes to what your point is, it's, it's going to be about policies, procedures, training. What did you do? Because again, I think when people are thinking about how do I scope this, what are my next steps? That's different, right? Because I think a lot of times when you're, you guys are conducting investigations and you all have done that, you're usually looking for, you know, the, the needle in the haystack, bad comment. And that doesn't seem what this is about, right? It's a, it's a much broader scope, I guess, in terms of it's really looking at what are you doing to comply with these regulations? And I think that that's a, di that's different, right? I think that's different in terms of how you normally would do an investigation. Yeah, you, you look, you're going to have people in any firm, whether it's inadvertent, right? People just tend to be customer, potential client, a potential uh, partner out in the in the business world, sends you a WhatsApp or sends you a message on an unsupervised channel and wants to communicate through that channel. Maybe you do it. Maybe you're doing it. Maybe there are certain people who do it deliberately to avoid surveillance and to avoid certain, you know, messages from being picked up. But these investigations are really focused on the firm's responsibilities to supervise their employees, as well as their communications, and to to, to fundamentally, at a, at a minimum, think about this issue and think about the new forms of electronic communications that have developed over the last few years and what you all are doing to implement sufficient supervisory controls, policies, and procedures to ensure that 
it's never going to be perfect, but to ensure that mo your employees are using supervised channels to communicate from business. And that's the focus of these cases that we've seen and the large fines, right? The, the fines are, are, are intended to prevent firms from viewing this issue as a cost of doing business. And I don't mean compliance, I mean paying the fines, right? The, the magnitude of the fines we've seen recently, they're specifically, and the SEC has said this, they're intended to, to ensure future compliance and be painful enough that firms don't just decide, hey, you know what, we're gonna continue doing business as usual, and we're just gonna deal with it, uh, the regulatory consequences as a cost of doing business. And th that is based on the firm's responsibility to supervise, to control, to address gaps affirmatively, and not necessarily when you're after you've been notified of an investigation or received a subpoena. I think that's interesting um, in terms of thinking about this. It, it almost is like the investigation is really focused on the compliance department, right? It's not, it's not all the investment advisors, broker dealers or whatever, whatever they're doing on their phones, which is obviously part of it. But a lot of it is, I think, as we keep hearing as a theme is they're going to investigate your compliance department. Like, what did you do? I mean, I think we saw this in the in the fines. Like it was it wasn't as much focus. I don't say this. Maybe there was some focus on what the individuals were doing with their phones and these unsupervised communication channels. But a lot of it is what was the compliance folks doing? Like, were they enforcing it? What policy they have? That is a pretty di big difference, because I think, you know, legal and compliance always like to say, OK, we're. We have to investigate the business. This is an investigation of them and their reaction. How does that change the way you conduct the investigation if that's your, if that's how it's working? So I think we definitely have seen in the sweep exam letter that they are, like you said, targeting individuals, asking who's responsible for this. And in a lot of the enforcement actions that have come out, you know, they've named people being or being complicit and actually using themselves. So compliance officers are using it. Senior management is using it. And it's, you know, like you said, it's not just an issue with WhatsApp, it's all the off-channel communications. And where historically a lot of these firms have relied on sort of blanket prohibition policies and just kind of relying on those to work, it's really now digging into, are you complying with these prohibition policies? How are you making sure that your firm is actually following them? So you have to be a lot more proactive in your supervision responsibilities. And we've just seen massive failures of that across a lot of these different enforcement actions where they're not following up on it. They're not following their own policies and procedures. And it's really coming out in how we're looking at you know, the risk of this and what we're going to have to sort of reevaluate the risk of these types of communications and the impact they're going to have on our firms. And so now let's let's talk about sort of the sort of the brass tactics here, because I think this is something that a lot of our clients are, are struggling with is, you know, the, the investigation is on basically the use of personal devices and personal accounts. What, what do you do when, you know, you don't want to have obstruction of justice charges or whatever. So how do you preserve that? Like, what are you doing? What do you what would you advise your clients on when you have senior executives and the like and they've got their personal phones? Like, what do you do? Like, what are the steps there? What makes sense in terms of balancing privacy versus compliance here? Thank you, Anthony. You got to decide what what is the focus of that particular investigation. Right. So. For example, if you get a subpoena or you get an inquiry that identifies particular individuals, right, and identify because they're the result of a tip or individuals in high places, officers and directors in your company, 
Well, you'd probably need to talk to those folks in, immediately, and you need to understand what they've been doing, what kind of devices they've been using, what sort of communication channels they've been using, and so on. More likely, the subpoena or inquiry you're going to get is not going to be focused on individual actors. It's not going to be focused on on any one or set of people, right? So then you're going to have to assess what types of steps you want to take in order to preserve the records that could be responsive to the inquiry, right? So, so you need to think about how broad is it? You know, if, if the inquiry is really focused on off-channel communications, right? Do I need to go to all of my employees and ask for their devices? Well, that's a pretty heavy burden on employees' privacy, and it could create a lot of risk for the company. You know, you always have to remember, once you have something in your hands, then you're looking at it and you have it and you're potentially responsible for what's in it. So I think it's important to, when you first get the subpoena, I mean, putting aside what you can do proactively, when you get first get a subpoena, first get an inquiry, it's important to sit down with a relatively broad array of partners within your organization, risk, compliance, legal, the business, and really come down, have an, as, as John alluded to before, have an honest conversation of what the scope of this is and come up with a reasonable method of identifying the devices, the channels, and if necessary, the individuals that you're going to have to talk to and that you're going to have to reach out to. You want to think about document preservation notices, litigation holds, some people call them. Uh, even if it's not a litigation, if there's a subpoena, you probably want to send one of those out anyway. And in crafting that litigation hold or the document retention notice, you're going you're gonna to target the appropriate set of custodians. You're going to target that notice to cover the material that the subpoena is, is asking about. And you have to think about the other issues that could come up as well, right? Something that's not specifically the focus of the subpoena, but maybe a related topic that could, that could be uncovered later on in an investigation. So I think the, the, the important part is there's no one size fits all. If you do get one of these inquiries, I think you need to have kind of a broad team of risk compliance, legal business, and other advisors come up with a plan as to document preservation, try to identify who you think the relevant witnesses might be, talk to them if, uh, if you know, come up with a plan to talk to them, whether that's going to be through internally, through outside counsel, through whatever channels, and 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 come up with a plan and document it. And again, be flexible to make amendments to it as you go on through the investigation. But it is important to come up with a plan at the beginning that's going to identify the scope of, of the people and the records that you're going to be looking at. Yeah, no, I think that's a terrific point because I do think there's often a natural reaction to overreact, right? Like they get it. They're like, oh, my God, we have to get let's collect everybody's phones and start immediately doing that without thinking through some of the issues you talked about. And I agree with you. It's always, I always tell clients, it's always better. It's always easier for me to defend a plan than a reaction, right? Like a plan, if you think about it, document it, saying this is what we're doing. We're going to sample whatever we're going to do. That's always a lot easier than we just immediately started collecting phones without, without any thought of what do we do with it once we get the data and the like. So planning is probably the most important thing um, when you do that. Anthony, can I just add one yeah. thing there? You know, part of that plan especially in inquiries like this, it has to have two things at least. And, and this is not, these aren't exclusive, but it, it has to have these two ingredients, especially since, again, these inquiries, just based upon how they fleshed out at the other firms, 
you know, implicated some higher ups. So I, th- I think there needs to be one, there needs to be buy-in from either the, the higher ups at the firm or the enterprise that you're going to go wherever you need to go, right? It's, it's not, it's not going to stop because, you know, Susie Q or John Smith, who's, you know, the vice president, senior vice president is getting implicated. You got to have buy-in from the beginning that we're going to go where we need to go because the firm is more important here than any individual person. And then I think the other thing you need to sort of say to yourselves is, you know, we're going to treat everybody equally. It does not matter, John Smith or Susie Q, who again are the senior vice presidents are implicated here. We're, we're going to treat them equally because that's what the regulators would expect. And it's just a better look for the firm, you know, when, when we put our cards on the table, right? And then I think the third thing that the firm has to, as part of the plan, really come to terms with is who's the internal team, right? Who's, who is, you know, if you're an outside counsel, who are the people you're working with internally? Who's the working group? Because I think there needs to be some real consideration from a number of different perspectives as to who's on that team. Do you need to take the steps, you know, on the front end to determine that the people who internally are a part of that team are clean? I mean, I, I would think you'd want to do before you start, you know, going down the road of involving these people in, in, in phone calls, text messages, emails, planners, whatever it is. You got to make sure that they're clean. But from a supervisory perspective, at least from you know a registered entity perspective, you're going to need some principal that is going to have decision-making authority on that team, because you know the enterprise can't supervise the broker-dealer's business. The broker-dealer has to do it, and and so these as coming up with a plan, these are the things I think that it, at the very least need to go into it. Yeah, and Anthony, going back, dovetailing back to a point you made that these investigations increasingly are investigations of the compliance department, right? Or potentially even the legal department, God forbid, that that you're, you're, that point that John just made is particularly relevant because normally, at least from the outside counsel's perspective, compliant, you know, the compliance people are the people you're working with when there's an investigation or some sort of regulatory response required. And in this case, I think, uh, you know, John's point is, is really well taken that you have to make sure that folks who may be fact witnesses who are within that function and who may have potentially have exposure, you got to try to ferret that out as early as possible. Yeah. And then look, that leads to that what happens when you find out whether it's somebody in the compliance department or the senior executives or whatever, when you see the violation, right? You see they were using WhatsApp, they were using text message for business or whatever. What do you do then, right? I mean, you and I think, John, your point is you sort of should know that before you start, as opposed to like getting it and then saying, okay, now what do we do? So what do you do? Like, what is what would you think would be appropriate, both from, you know, from the regulator standpoint of what steps would you take when you find that either either you have systematic violations or an individual person has violations? Well, I mean, both of those scenarios, at least in the broker dealer world, implicate Rule 4530 and the disclosures that are mandated by the rule. You know, certainly if you have systemic issues, that's, you know, that's that's a raise your hand, full disclosure. If you have, you know, a rep who is engaging in multiple instances of violative conduct, you got to raise your hand. Right. And so, you know, that's that's one piece of it. Going back to what Tiffany said before, you know, sometimes before you wait to get the letter, you are proactive. So, you know, that's part of it is, okay, if you learn after being proactive, then what do you do? Well, there's, there are rules set up for that too and obligations. 
from a disciplinary perspective, you know, I think I don't I don't think it's divorced from what normally happens is when you have, you know, internal investigations that involve multiple people. You know, here you might just have more. You just might, you might have 50 people instead of, you know, five or 10 or whatever it is. And I think you got to balance, you know, how much, how egregious was it deliberate? You know, were there mitigating or, or you know, aggravating circumstances? I'm a big fan of trying to, you know, treat everybody the same. You know, there's no reason why somebody, because they're senior up, they need to get, you know, a lighter slap on the wrist versus someone who, who's a middle manager or the like. So I think it really depends on like those factors, egregiousness, aggravating, mitigating circumstances, volume, deliberateness, things like that. And, and I, I think Tiffany could probably speak to this too, but just in terms of remediation, right? If you're, if you're, if you're dealing with a retention issue, you got to fix it, right? You got to fix it. If, you, if there's a problem and you've identified it, whether that's because somebody has admitted to you that they've been using off-channel communications or because you've identified it as a more systemic issue, you got you to gotta think about what steps your firm can take at that time to preserve what you can. Right. So so if you haven't been retaining a certain source of communications and now you know that those communications exist and they were they need to be retained and reviewed and supervised. Well, you got to take steps to figure out how to retain what's there, uh, uh, you know, to, to mitigate, to mitigate the scope of the problem and uh, and, and, you know, also consider and implement as promptly as possible, but also thoughtfully controls, right, additional controls and policies and procedures to address these types of violations. And I, like I said, Tiffany could probably speak to what some of those tools could be, you know, in, in, in terms of in, in additional controls, whether that's uh, surveillance tools, more robust lexicons in your, in your e-com searches or, or whatever else. Yeah. And so Tiffany, why don't we give you the last word on this? So yes, absolutely. If you find that you have these communication channels that your firm has been using and you want to continue to use them, there's absolutely tools in place for that. And I would think through your controls on that, how am I going to containerize what's being used for business and personal is also important in your policies and procedures. And setting up the the team to know like how to use those appropriately so those don't cross. If you can keep those as separate as possible, that will help with a lot of privacy issues. But being able to bring those inf- that information in, you know, most of the applications, mobile applications and communication channels that we're using today are capturable. We can enable people to use these and use them in a compliant manner. Being able to capture them, retain them, and then obviously supervise them to make sure that they're, you know, being used appropriately is, is easy enough to do with a vendor like Smarsh. So make sure that you understand your obligations and that you can follow through on them. Because I think a lot of these communication channels, right now it's WhatsApp, you know, in the future, it's going to be, you know, five different channels. So really making sure you're keeping a beat on those and evaluating what's right for your firm and enabling your personnel to use those communication channels will be a lot more proactive than just trying to set a blanket prohibition policy that we've now seen is not working. Yeah, no, and I think that diligence, as you said, the technology is going to change constantly. So it's not a one-time, let's do it this year. This is a, you're going to have to do it every year and say, what are the communication channels are people using and figure out what it is. And as you said, try to capture it and do whatever you can to do it. So, well, thanks everybody um, for joining us. Thank you to our partners at, at Smarsh for joining us. 
certainly come back. We're going to have more podcasts on this subject. It's a, it's a ripe area for podcasts. So thanks everybody. And we'll talk to you later. Bye. Tech Law Talks is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's tech and data practice, please email techlawtalks at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.